0: If you have a Bible, turn with me uh, to the book of John, chapter 3, is where our text is this morning. John chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at a passage that is very familiar. In fact, contains uh, perhaps the most familiar, well known verse in Scripture. Uh, but we're going to kind of talk through the setting and the background of that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dig into Scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn our attention to opening the scriptures with one another, we pray, as always, for just an awareness of the way that you move and the way that you speak through these living and active words. So give us eyes and ears to see and hear. And give us a receptiveness to the way that you will be at work and you will move as we, as we listen and we encounter the word together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 3 tells a story of Jesus having a conversation with this guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is a really interesting character in the Gospel of John, and he pops up on occasion. If you read through the Gospel of John, all of a sudden you just see Nicodemus kind of flowing in and flowing out of the story. Uh, By the end of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus is actually one of the ones who takes Jesus' body off the cross and helps to prepare it for burial. And so he ends the story in this really intimate, personal, connected moment with Jesus. But what we want to look at today is the moment when this relationship begins. And we'll see that it starts off significantly different than, than how it ends. And we see kind of the way that Jesus is at work in, in this relationship. So in, in chapter 3 of John, it starts out like this. It says now there was a Pharisee, named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Let's start there and just kind of talk through who uh, this guy is. So first we're told that he's a Pharisee. We've talked a lot about Pharisees for the normal. Uh, Jewish person living in jesus 's day, the Pharisees would be the respected religious leaders. These were the guys who seemed to have it all together. These were the guys who were essentially the professional religious people. Their lives were dedicated to following God, and they did it in a way that was public, and they did it in a way that was precise, and they did it in a way where everything about who they were kind of flowed into their idea, their understanding of what it meant to follow God. And so this is who Nicodemus is, but he's also part of the Jewish ruling council or the Sanhedrin. Uh, This would be the group of people who essentially were in charge of the Jewish community underneath the authority of Rome, right? So Rome ruled over Israel, but the Jewish ruling council was like their own kind of personal uh, government, political, religious body that that operated underneath it. So this is who Nicodemus is. He is an important guy, right? Right? He's one of the few who hold this kind of dual position of leadership and authority within the Jewish community in the first century. He's a Pharisee, a professional religious person. He's part of the Jewish ruling council. Yet he has an interest in this Middle Eastern storyteller who's going around and performing these miracles and doing these things that no one has ever heard of before. He's heard about this Jesus guy. He's seen either firsthand or secondhand Uh, The way that Jesus is able to perform miracles and signs and wonders and things that Jesus is doing that no one else has done before, and he's intrigued by this. He's curious about this, and he wants to know more. But John specifically tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. There's a few different ideas of of what this actually means, but perhaps the most straightforward uh, understanding of what it means for Nicodemus to come to Jesus at night is he was a little bit nervous about what his brethren would think if he he was found out uh, to be hanging around this guy who eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, right? Jesus was the anti-Pharisee in many ways. Uh, The heart of Jesus' teaching ministry was uh, to tear down what the Pharisees thought that they were building up. Yet Nicodemus is drawn to this in a way that he cannot stay away and so he goes to Jesus but he goes at night because he doesn't want to be found out, he doesn't want to be caught, he doesn't want to be too associated with it until he learns more. So uh, he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no, no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus begins this conversation by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a man from God, or a man who has been sent from God. This line is extremely telling when we start to try to understand who this Nicodemus character is, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, this is what I know about you, This is what I have determined. This is what I have figured out. This is what I have come to a conclusion on. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The Pharisees' lives were built around the idea of we can know and contain and control, right? A Pharisee's life was all about keeping their religious, political world and culture into these nice little neat boxes, right? If I can do these things, then I can be a righteous man. I know I can be holy if I practice these laws. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? This kind of checklist morality. As long as I am ticking the boxes, as long as I am following these rules, then I know that I am in God's good graces. This is essentially how Nicodemus has built his life and his reputation. By being the type of person who can say, I know this to be true because of X, Y, and Z. I have ticked all the boxes, I have drawn all the conclusions, I have done all the studying, and I have come to these answers, and I know, and I can say that, I know. And this is a very comforting thing, right? And this is a very comforting thing for Nicodemus to be able to say, I understand this, I know this, I know my religious safety because I follow these rules, and I follow these laws, and I do all of these things right, and so therefore I know I can figure it out. I have it all under control in my mind. Uh, Isla eats uh, her food out of plates that probably, well, many of you, maybe as adults, still use, right? That have these nice little segments and separations in them, right? So that the peas stay here and the applesauce stays here and the pasta stays here, right? And everything stays in its nice little neat compartments. This is sort of what it looked like for Nicodemus as he lived his life. There was great comfort in him knowing that the peas were here and the yogurt was here and the pasta was here, right? Because everything was contained, everything was controlled. And as long as everything was contained and everything controlled, Nicodemus was in charge, right? Nicodemus could make sure that he was in God's good graces because he kept the peas here and the carrots here and the yogurt here, right? This is how Nicodemus went through life. And he comes to Jesus, who he's intrigued by, And he leads into this conversation by by giving this away right away. We know, Jesus, we've studied, we've researched, we understand, I get it, and I know this about you. We know, Rabbi, that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. (laughs) So we read this, and we see Nicodemus come and kind of give Jesus his compliment and seems to be asking him this question about where he's from and his origin. Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of heaven Like, what? (laughs) Were you listening to what I just said? What does that have anything to do with, right? It seems like this is completely out of left field, that Jesus is like just kind of doing his own thing, and here's Nicodemus, oh, here's a great opportunity for me to preach a sermon, right? But when we dig into this a little bit, I think what we see is this is actually a brilliant interchange that Jesus is having with, with Nicodemus. And he's, he's playing off of uh, some, some words and some language. But what he's also doing is Jesus is doing that thing <laughs> that your spouse does or that thing that your sister or brother does or that thing that your best friend does. That thing who the person who knows you the best, who knows you perhaps more or better than you know yourself does, when you come to them or you are doing something and you're kind of trying to blow smoke, right? (laughs) You're trying to kind of say something or talk about something, but there's really something else going on underneath, right? There's the thing you're talking about, the thing that you're trying to look like, you have it all together, yet underneath right there's this kind of there's this kind of underlying issue there's this bubbling under the surface and your spouse knows right and this is the most frustrating thing right when they read your body language or they read your tone of voice or they hear you say something and they know that there's something else going on here can i get an amen right you guys all know what i'm talking about right it's that 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 thing where they can read through you and they can see through you and they can see that there's something else going on here. This may be what you're talking about or this may be what you want to try uh, to look like. This might be the facade you might be putting up, but there's something more important and more significant. This is exactly what Jesus is doing, right? Because Jesus knows Nicodemus more than Nicodemus knows himself. And so when he comes to Jesus and he presents himself as rabbi, we know this, we've determined this, we've put it all together, we've carried the one and the X and the Y, and we know we've got this all in the right compartment. And Jesus here plays on what Nicodemus says and reads deeply into the underlying need, the thing that is actually important, the thing that actually matters. So I wanna kind of break this down and we'll see here what Jesus is doing. So Nicodemus comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Uh, I highlighted that phrase, no one could. The, the Greek word at the heart of this is the word dunamai, which means to do, uh, or, or in this case, no one could to, to not do, right? So he says, we know this because no one could do this unless God were with them. And Jesus says this. In your Bibles, it may say truly, truly, or verily, verily, if you're old school, right? Uh, but in the Greek, this is the word amen, amen. Uh, amen, amen really simply means true or, or it is right. The fact that it is repeated means that most likely what Jesus is saying here is he's saying amen. You are, you are correct. No one could do this unless they're born from God. But then he plays on that. He says, and also, right? So true, No one could perform these signs unless they're known from God. And, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So in the heart of Jesus' response is the same word that Nicodemus used. When he said, no one could perform the signs. Jesus says, that's true. And also, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In other words, what Jesus is doing here, is he's perceiving what Nicodemus <laughs> thinks, which is, I have all of my peas and my carrots and my yogurt and everything placed in the right compartment, and therefore I am righteous, I am good, I am right, I am on God's good side. And Jesus sees through that, and he hears that, and he knows the heart of Nicodemus. And he says, I'm glad that you've come to me and begun this conversation, but let me now kind of begin to peel back the layers and get to the heart of what makes you tick. Because Nicodemus, this facade that you've built, this tower of protection that you've built of knowing the rules and knowing the answers and having all of your X's and Y's together, that's actually not that important. That's good, but... None of that is going to lead to anything unless you are born again. That phrase, born again, throws Nicodemus for a loop. It's a little bit of an odd turn of phrase, but we'll see what Jesus is getting at here, right? Because Jesus knows this, this, this deep set issue. Nicodemus has essentially lived a life in which he has tried to orchestrate his way to God. He's tried to orchestrate a type of righteousness that puts him in line with God. Jesus is calling him out on it. But Nicodemus responds, right? Because this is a weird thing for Jesus to say. And so he says in verse 4, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And we, read, we hear Nicodemus' words say, Nicodemus, duh, it's a figure of speech, don't you get it? But If you've never heard this term before, if you've never heard the word to be born again, right, and somebody said to you, you can't do this unless you're born again, you would probably have a very similar response to what Nicodemus says here, right? He's hearing Jesus literally saying, how can this happen, right? And surely they cannot. Here's that word again, (laughs) right? So, Rabbi, no one can perform these signs, Jesus, true, says true, and no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Nicodemus responds, well, no one can enter into their mother's womb a second time. You see how this interplay is starting to work out? It's riffing on this phrase of what a person can and cannot do. And Nicodemus responds in the same way that many of us would respond. Yet one of the things we'll see is that Nicodemus is profoundly missing what Jesus is getting at. Because Jesus answers in verse five, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Let's break this down a little bit, right? How can somebody go back into their mother's womb when they're old? Surely they cannot do that. Jesus responds, that's true, Nicodemus. (laughs) Now, I think it's important here, when we read this, sometimes we read Jesus as kind of this like angry schoolmaster correcting Nicodemus. That's not true, that's not true. But what if Jesus was saying this with kind of a smile, right? What if Jesus is kind of being a little playful here with Nicodemus? It's serious, and it's serious stuff, but I think Jesus is, is sort of, kind of playing, uh, kind of toying with Nicodemus a little bit. And he says, that's true, Nicodemus. No one can enter their mother's womb. You're correct about that. But, or and, what's also true is that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit." He's playing on this phrase of what a person can and cannot do. And he says, no one can enter unless they are born of water and spirit. This is language that's used all throughout Scripture. But especially in the book of John, to be born of water and spirit uh, has this sense of a profound change that is taking place in the life of someone. Later on, Scripture talks about the washing of regeneration that takes place when, when somebody commits and fully enters into a relationship with God. And so what Jesus is getting at here is at the heart of what Nicodemus doesn't get. Nicodemus has been trying to manipulate and orchestrate and work his way into a righteous place before God. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, that's great that you're doing that, Nicodemus. True, but... There's one thing that you are missing. There's one thing that you are lacking. And that is that you can't do that. You're orchestrating and you're manipulating and you're moving. That's all great. But the thing that actually matters, the thing that is of importance, is a rebirth that can only come from the Spirit of God. And Jesus knows and he predicts that Nicodemus isn't going to get this either. So he gives him an example. He basically says, consider the wind, Nicodemus. I know that you've been living your life, figuring everything out and tooling everything and building everything. I know that you've lived your life in these compartments. But think about the wind. He says the wind, it blows, it moves. We see it in the world. But Nicodemus, where does the wind come from? how does the wind work? What what little box that you've created does the wind fit into? Explain this thing to me, this wind. And Jesus is essentially saying, look, Nicodemus, you can't explain the wind. You don't know where that comes from. You don't know where it goes. Yet that does not make it untrue. Just because you can't fit something into your box of knowledge and understanding, just because you can't Get control over something doesn't mean that that thing is not true. So, what Jesus is essentially saying to Nicodemus is Look, friend, I know you, and I know what you've been doing your whole life. I know this desire that you have to put everything into the right place. I know this thought that you have that you can manipulate yourself into God's good graces. I know that you've been living your life in such a way that you have been trying to orchestrate through following the right rules and saying the right prayers and giving the right gifts and doing all of these things, that by doing this, you can build yourself this little tower that you can eventually get up on and find yourself on the right level with God. But that's not gonna work. None of that works. None of that matters unless You've experienced this, this sort of full fledged rebirth, rewashing, new experience that only comes from the water and from the Spirit. And it's something that you can't get, just like the wind is something that you can't get. And this, I think, gets to the heart of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus. With his pride. He comes to Jesus with all of his ducks in a row. He comes to Jesus with his nice lunch tray, with everything where it needs to be, and says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know this because. And then Jesus starts to slowly pull the pieces out of the Jenga puzzle. And he says, Well, I'm glad you know this, and I'm glad you know this, and I'm glad you know this, and I'm glad you know this, this, but none of that matters unless you have experienced this rebirth, unless you've experienced something that you can't control, that you can't manipulate, that you can't orchestrate. Unless you've experienced something as mysterious and profound as the wind, it doesn't matter how tall your tower is because it's worthless. Nicodemus comes with his pride and he ends by saying in verse 9, how can this be? Jesus has just torn down everything that Nicodemus had been building for his whole life. This righteousness that has come through following and obeying and doing all the right things and being the good Pharisee and the good Jewish ruling man and doing all of these things, Jesus says none of that matters unless you've experienced this rebirth, this thing that you can't fully Explain. And he just starts to throw up his hands. And so Jesus, again, with a smile, with love, with understanding, breaks it down. And he says, You're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things. Truly, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? This is Jesus' phrase here. Heavenly things is those things that can't quite fit into Nicodemus' lunch tray, right? The things that don't quite neatly find themselves uh, where Nicodemus wants them to be. It says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, and just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. So this little image that Jesus gives, he, he, he's having this conversation, this verbal sparring match with Nicodemus. This guy who comes to him with all of his ducks in a row and all of his pieces put together. This guy who comes to Jesus and has built himself this tower of righteousness, yet is intrigued. There's something about Jesus that's different, that's unique. He has some sort of authority and he's doing things that we've never seen before. Nicodemus comes to him with his pride. Jesus takes the pieces apart and shows that this tower that he's built is actually useless because he hasn't done the one thing that actually matters. For all his orchestrating and manipulating, he hasn't done the thing that actually counts, which is to have faith in the the full rebirth that can only come uh, through God. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, (laughs) you're fighting here. You're fighting against the wind. You're swimming upstream. And to give an example of what he means, he says, think about this, Nicodemus. Do you remember that story uh, from our people a long time ago when the Israelites had left Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness and because of their sin, I sent serpents and snakes, God sent fiery serpents, fiery snakes into the camp and the snakes started biting people and killing people and the whole community was just in utter chaos because these snakes were just wreaking havoc on the Israelite camp. And Moses uh, says to God, stop this. We need to stop this. What what can we do uh, to to, to make this end? And God doesn't say to Moses, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to do 46 prayers. You need to give 300 talents of offering. You need to do all of these things. And then once you do that, then we can talk about having some sort of grace and forgiveness here. What God says is the most ridiculous thing ever. He says, Moses, build a snake out of bronze. And put it on a stick. Moses is like, okay, this isn't where I thought this was going, but all right. And so he puts, he builds this snake out of bronze and he puts the snake on, the stake on a, puts it on a stick, right? The snake on a stick, which sounds like something they eat in like Alabama, right? Uh, and he raises this snake in the air. And what God says to him is, anybody who will look, who will cast their eyes upon this bronze serpent, will be healed. What? (laughs) I'm being bitten by a poisonous snake, but if I look at that statue, I will be healed. Did I I get that right? Did I miss something? (laughs) Was was there a translation error here? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Put the serpent in the air, and if they look at the serpent, and if they trust that by looking at the serpent, they will be healed. They will be healed. Okay, (laughs) there's a serpent in the air. If you look on it, God says you will be healed. And so they do this stupid thing, (laughs) this thing that doesn't compute, this thing that doesn't make sense, this thing that is not a religious act of doing and building and constructing. There's nothing righteous about this. It's simply a statement that God said, if we do this, he will heal us. And so they do it, and they're healed. And it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't fit in the categories of religious practice and action and do these things and the gods will be happy with you. It, it, it's just totally out of left field. It's just totally this, this odd thing that says, trust me and you will be healed. Don't do anything about it. And Jesus says, Nicodemus... <laughs> Remember that serpent? Remember that weird, obscure story of God offering forgiveness and grace and healing just simply by trusting, not by doing? That's the thing you're missing. That's the thing that's not in your little house of bricks that you've built. That's the thing that's not in your compartmentalized lunch tray of religious practice in life. The simple faith that God and God alone can bring righteousness. Not by doing or building or constructing. Then we get to the verse, right? 316, and some of your Bibles may have this in red letters, implying that Jesus said this. Others may not, implying that this is John kind of giving commentary on this. I'm perhaps more swayed by that, but it doesn't matter if Jesus said it or John wrote it. The profound beauty of this, right? After this conversation about Nicodemus trying to build himself, compute himself, orchestrate himself, manipulate himself into God's good graces, and Jesus tearing that down brick by brick. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm guessing you've heard that verse before. And I'm guessing you're probably at the point where you've heard that verse so many times that you just kind of take it as what it is. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it, it doesn't compute. It doesn't work from a religious righteousness Brick-layered compartmentalization. God gave his son, and if we believe in him, then we have eternal life. So where's my part? Where's the things that I do? Where's my building? Where is this fit, right? This this verse has stood the test of time and has become... Uh, really the cornerstone of of evangelical Christianity because it so powerfully and beautifully computes the simplistic and somewhat absurd claim of the gospel (laughs) that the way that you find yourself in God's good graces is not through the practice of building and constructing and manipulating and orchestrating, but the only way... (laughs) you find yourself within a righteous relationship with God is by believing that Jesus did something that could get you there. And it doesn't make sense, yet the profound truth of this is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That the most critical moment comes when we recognize that we cannot orchestrate or manipulate our way to God. It doesn't matter how good of a tower you've built. It doesn't matter how strong or how beautiful or how shiny or how robust it is. It's all worthless, as Nicodemus found out, unless you get to the point where you recognize that that thing that you've built and orchestrated and manipulated is actually not worth anything unless you've had this profound moment of faith that God can do what God says he does simply by believing that God has done what he says he did. There's a serpent on a stick. Look at it and you will be healed. There's a man on a cross Believe that that did something and you will be healed. It doesn't compute, yet it is the thing. And without that, the whole thing falls apart. Now, Paul figured this out. And in Philippians, he says this. As he talks about all of the ways that he had built a tower and a wall and a structure it says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. So all of the stuff that he's accumulated, all of the walls and the tower that he's built, this righteousness, right? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Nicodemus, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The serpent on the stick, the man on the cross, right? The moment that changed Paul's life was the moment he recognized that the things that he thought were putting him in the right relationship with God were actually a bunch of garbage (laughs) compared to the true thing that was putting him in right relationship with God, which is faith that something happened on that cross. Our most critical moment comes when we recognize we cannot orchestrate or manipulate our way to God. I know a lot of us have gotten to that point, but maybe not everyone. As, as we gather together every Sunday, we all come from different places, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking through what it means to be a person of faith. And maybe for you, what it's looked like for the last several years is just figuring that, you know, as long as my tower is this high, as long as my righteousness is this, as long as, right, then God will be ple- pleased and happy with me. And then we'll find, you know, when I die, we'll put the things on the scale, right, that whole, that whole deal. Maybe like Nicodemus, today is the day for you to recognize that God is flicking those bricks out of your tower, and your Jenga board is about to fall over. Maybe for you, today's the moment to recognize that you can't and you haven't been able to orchestrate or manipulate your way to God, but that thing has been done, that cross has been offered. And maybe for you, this morning, it's simply this act of surrendering what you've been trying to do and taking hold of the thing that already has been done. But maybe even if you've already taken that step, and I think a lot of us maybe find ourselves in here, how easy it is to forget this simple beauty of the gospel. How easy it is for us to begin to think of ourselves as something we are not, right? God must be particularly happy with me because I am the pastor of the church, right? Because I've been reading my Bible almost every day in 2020, right? God must be extra happy with me now. (laughs) And maybe we don't want to, we don't put our salvation in that, yet we kind of find ourselves, or maybe it's the other way, right? I've read my Bible on Sundays in 2020 when Pastor Jim told me to on the days that I remembered. (laughs) Or (laughs) I'm not a pastor of a church. I don't even come to church most of the time. In fact, I don't even want to come to church most of the time. Therefore, God must not be very happy with me, right? Because this, this, this truth of the cross stands in between both of those things. It reminds us that that's not worth anything, <laughs> and that doesn't matter either. God wants us to follow. God wants us to live lives that are righteous. But if we think that it's our personal righteousness or unrighteousness that has anything to do with our standing before God, we're just like Nicodemus. And we're the people who need to have the rug pulled out from underneath us. So, for you this morning, as we hear these scriptures, how do you need to hear this simple and profound truth of the gospel? You cannot and you have not been able to manipulate or orchestrate yourself to God, yet God has called you to him through the work of the cross. And it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't compute, and there's nothing that you can do about it Accept, believe, and have faith. For you this morning, maybe this is the day that you put your faith in that for the first time. Maybe you've heard this before. But for, for some reason, God is moving and speaking to you in a way that's different. Maybe today is the day that, in the words of Jesus, you are born again. Or maybe for you today, you just need to be reminded, as we were a few weeks ago and as the scriptures continue to remind us, that your tower that you built is nothing unless there's an underlying regeneration, rebirth, washing, cleansing, spirit, water thing happening. Maybe it needs to be a reminder that your tower is not so great after all. Whatever it is that the scriptures need to speak to you this morning, I pray that you listen. I pray that we all listen. And I pray that we allow the gospel that doesn't quite make sense to speak and powerfully transform our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this interaction that we have in scripture with Jesus and, and this man, Nicodemus. We thank you for that because we so often find ourselves in that same place. We thank you for the reminder that it's not through works of righteousness that we have done, but it's simply and only through the blood of your son shed on the cross and our faith in that, that we are able to live in a righteous relationship with you. God, may that be our story this morning. May you speak into the hearts of each one of us. May this this hit us in a way that perhaps is new and fresh this morning because your scriptures always speak. May you wrestle with us, may you challenge us, may you transform us because that's what you're in the pattern and the habit of doing. We thank you for your word in this time together. In in your name we pray, amen. Grace be with you.